Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. We have some housekeeping. So on this week's episode, we will be talking about anti-Semitism, assimilation, and the question we'll be grappling with is assimilation the solution to anti-Semitism. This is the very theme of Hanukkah and the Hellenists. I am honored to present this episode to you. On another note, this Hanukkah, I will be releasing a new music video to my older song, Elokaina Shama, featuring Barry Mitzman, also known as Barriana, and host of the Woman of Valor podcast. When I was thinking of inspiration for the music video, it was an obvious decision to dedicate the song with the words of Elokaina Shema and video to all our brothers and sisters and their loved ones who are fighting life with addiction. I love it when I can combine my platforms and bring a message with more force for the sake of spreading awareness and removing stigma. So in honor of Hanukkah and shining lights, next week we have a non-anonymous episode with someone who shares her story about addiction. So stay tuned for that. And last, if you are thinking or have been thinking of launching your own podcast, look no further. Take my online course that will take you step by step. And if you don't get everything you need from it, let me know. I'll personally make sure all your podcasting questions are answered. Satisfaction guaranteed because you're getting your message out there and that is my priority. For more information, check out the link in the show notes. You are listening to The Francisca Show on the Jewish Coffeehouse Network and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Fran stands today with us. We have Rabbi Wilds from the Upper West Side. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Last time you appeared on Jewish Coffee House podcast was on Orthodox Conundrum, and you were there to talk about Kirov. You were there to talk about outreach as well as preserving inreach or uh, making sure that the people born into our communities are staying and are engaged in our communities. Today, we are here to talk about anti-Semitism and all the other fun and not fun stuff that relates to being Jewish. Mm-hmm. So let's just get started. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your religious and your professional background, and tell us a little bit about MGE. So first of all, thank you. I think it's a really important to have these conversations and get as much wisdom and insight into what we're dealing with, into anti-Semitism, which unfortunately is, is rearing its ugly head. So I'm from Forest Hills, Queens. I'm a proud Queens boy. I live in the city for many years now. And even though by training, I'm an attorney, I worked in the law for a bit. I was very passionate when I was in high school and college about Soviet Jewry. So I actually went to graduate school to become a Sovietologist. And I studied at at SIPA, which is Columbia School for International Affairs and the Harriman Institute for Soviet Studies. And I combined it with a law degree because I wanted to save my Jewish brothers and sisters from behind the Iron Curtain, speak about, speaking about anti-Semitism. There was a lot of anti-Semitism going on behind the Iron Curtain for decades, and I wanted to make a difference. And they all got out, not all of them, but the Iron Curtain, it fell, and our Jewish brothers and sisters were able to leave in mass. There are a million of them in Israel today and probably close to a million in the United States. There were about three at the time in Russia. And that was a very animating part of my childhood. I became very involved with the plight of refuseniks. And when that issue, I think, was, I wouldn't say put to rest, but not as much of a crisis anymore, I got sucked into the whole Jewish outreach world. And it happened really because I was interested in, I was in Smicha and YU. I was in rabbinical school at Yeshiva University. I really, just to learn, I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to go into my, my dad's immigration law firm, do some more of this international law, human rights stuff. But I fell in love with learning, with Torah study. And in YU, they don't let you float around. You got to be in a program. So I entered the rabbinical school, not to be a rabbi, but then at the end, they have you do an apprenticeship, an internship, which I wasn't going to do because that's for like the real rabbis. But one of my teachers said, you know, you came this far, it's good to get the degree. So I did an internship in Queens, where I'm from. I started a beginner service 
I plastered Queens Boulevard and Yellowstone Boulevard and 108th Street with flyers and eight people showed up and I was hooked. That was my first beginner service probably 26, 27 years ago and I haven't stopped. I got recruited to Manhattan to do it and I eventually started MJE with the same goal in mind, which is to engage less affiliated Jewish men and women in Judaism. And I absolutely adore it and love it. And that's what I've been dedicated to. And our whole staff, we have an 18-person staff at MGE. It's quite a big operation. Nine full-time people, nine part-time people trying to engage as many of our Jewish brothers and sisters in the tri-state area as possible. So to comment on number one, well, outreach and helping Sovietology, as you called it, is very related or one is connected. At least for me, it is because I grew up in Moscow. And my parents do outreach, so <laughs> we have those two connected. And then, of course... Your dad is still, your father's still the chief rabbi? No, so he resigned that title a few weeks mm -hmm. after the war broke out last spring. Uh-huh. Oh, I think I saw that. I think I saw that. Your father actually many years ago spoke here at MGE. He was amazing. I'm not just saying that because he's your dad, <laughs> but I found him to be incredibly inspirational. He has a beautiful name in the community, in the rabbinate. Thank you. Anyway, so Yeah, I agree. And for me, outreach is, well, a personal topic, first of all, because I grew up in it. Second of all, because most of my life's work right now is talking about the issues in our communities. How can we bring outsiders into our communities where there are so many problems mm -hmm. with it? And one of the problems being anti-Semitism, which is not only what concerns people in the communities, but anyone who is born Jewish or has a Jewish last name or is affiliated with Jewish people. So talk to us if we had to break down what anti-Semitism is, and maybe we'll talk about when is it exaggerated, when is it actually appropriate, and we can move, go from there. So first of all, I want to say something about the first thing you said. I do think the Orthodox community has a lot of problems and issues, but at the end of the day, after all the dust has settled, I think this community has so much to offer our less connected Jewish brothers and sisters. The idea of Shabbat and community, I just brought like 32 MGE participants to the five towns for Shabbos. And I have to tell you, it was incredible because what you and I maybe take for granted, like a tight-knit community of Jews looking out for each other and observing the Sabbath and just going to kosher restaurants, sending their kids to day schools and summer camps, it's like amazing relative to what most American Jews get to experience about their Judaism. I had a woman in class just two nights ago who said that like she's always felt on the periphery and it's not because of anything negative that happened. It's just that she was never part of a community. Her family belonged to their local reform temple, nothing against the reform movement. They were not so affiliated and typically they don't, you feel like you're on the outside. So so I think there's so much, even with all the problems, you know, and we, and last time I was on the Orthodox conundrum, we, we spoke about some of those problems. So now we got anti-Semitism. I don't think anti-Semitism actually is going to keep Jews on the periphery from coming in. It's actually just the opposite. There are studies that show that the more anti-Semitism, the more of a wake-up call it is to less connected Jews. Less connected Jews tend to wake up when they're pushed against the wall. And I don't know if it's that natural sense of rebellion that we all have within us, like, okay, I don't really care so much about my Judaism, or I don't really know why it matters so much, but then don't tell me I can't be Jewish, or don't say something disgusting about my grandmother, <laughs> about my parents. Right Now you just struck a chord. And in fact, I'll share something interesting. Alan Dershowitz, who was a speaker at MGE probably eight or nine years ago, he wrote a book called The Vanishing American Jew. And in that book, he argued that when there's no more anti-Semitism, we're going to have a big problem because what keeps a lot of Jews Jewish is anti-Semitism. And when he spoke at MGE many years ago, we had like five, 600 people. It was a huge crowd. He pointed to me and he said, Rabbi, it's going to be up to people like you to demonstrate why Judaism is so awesome to be part of even if there's no anti-Semitism. Meaning like, if you don't have that force pushing against you to provoke you to be Jewish, what's going to get you to be connected? What's going to get you to be engaged and actively Jewish? 
So, and, and, and by the way, I think that's a terrible thing that we only wake up when we're attacked. We should wake up because Judaism is awesome to be a part of, because the Jewish community is vibrant, because Israel is amazing, and because Torah and mitzvot are a great way to live life. But I'll take anti-Semitism. Now, my daughter right now is in Poland with her seminary, and she's sending me pictures of the camps. And she's all, I mean, you can imagine, these are 18-year-old girls on this trip, first time seeing the camps. Please don't misunderstand what I just said. Anti-Semitism is terrible. It's dangerous. But it does have the effect of waking Jewish people up. So I, I'm concerned about anti-Semitism. I'm concerned about violence against Jews. I'm concerned about hatred against Jews. But I'm not concerned that that somehow is going to push Jews back. I think it's going to pull us out of the woodwork. Let's say we had to separate or create some categories. So there's the obvious stereotypes and defamation. I don't know what to call it, but idiotic comments online by Kanye West, for example. Right. So we have that. And then you have the other extreme, which is our entire Jewish history. Take Hanukkah, Purim, the Holocaust. We're always hated and people want to destroy us no matter what, what, where we are in history. Is there anything in between that we have? In between what? In between like silly little comments that people make, stupid things. That can cause violence. But like, what's the difference between the two? And how can anyone who's thinking to themselves, it's so, exactly, it's so silly. What's the big deal? Or the stuff he's saying is true. Or he's, he's actually making compliments. Like, what's wrong with what he's saying? It's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal because we know that what we say matters and what people hear, especially today when everything gets magnified through social media, things have a way when they're put out there in the ether of affecting the way we think about other people. If I keep hearing a derogatory slang word against a certain ethnic group, even if I think it's ridiculous intellectually, it creates its own reality. So we have to oppose anti-Semitic statements. We have to combat it. We have to discuss it. And we can't let it go unannounced. We can't just say, oh, he's an idiot. Just ignore him. Now, there is, there is a fine line because sometimes if it's something little and you make a bigger deal, all of a sudden you're giving more. You remember, I don't know, many years ago, the movie, a very anti-Semitic movie called A Passion of the Christ came out with Mel Gibson, who's a terrible anti-Semite, by the way. And I remember, I think the ADL made a big mistake. And I understand why they did what they did. Can you just give some background? This movie came out about, the, about Jesus and about the crucifixion, and it, it basically reinforced this, this Christian stereotype of Jews as Christ killers. And it wasn't doing very well in the theaters. It wasn't a, po- a terribly popular movie. But the ADL got very upset about it. So they started like taking out ads against it, and all of a sudden everybody wanted to see the movie. And they made the movie very popular. And that's always the rub. That's always the tension. Like if I, if I talk about it too much, then I'm giving Kanye West a platform. Now, I think Kanye West had a huge platform already. I think if something is small and insignificant, I say let it go. Because when we pay too much attention to it, then it has a way of us feeding the fire. But if something is dangerous, I think these black Israelites are actually dangerous And even though they're not a massive group, they've already perpetrated two anti-Semitic crimes, one in Jersey City and one in Muncie. If you remember, they were Jews killed by this group. They took responsibility. So, you know, even though they're not a massive group, they A, seem to be getting a little bigger, but they're not massive, but they are dangerous. So you could have a small terrorist group and they need to be called out and we need to get the police to be on them and we need to protect our institutions and we need to make sure that the things that they say don't go unopposed. And I think that's really important. So to answer your question, one thing leads to the next. If you allow too much anti-Semitic language and rhetoric to go unobjected, uh, it does result, it has resulted in anti-Semitism because this is what Hitler taught the world. Hitler did not first start attacking Jews. What he did was, he first started developing the anti-Semitic ideology, which he wrote about it in Mount Kampf when he was in jail in the early 30s. And then he started lecturing and giving these massive talks until he finally convinced enough Germans 
that the Jews were the cause of Germany's problems in World War I, that led to World War I, and that if we don't rid Germany and we don't make her pure Aryan, okay, and we don't get rid of the Jews, we're going to have a problem again because of the Jews. If you keep doing that, you can get, you can, it allows, it paves the way for anti-Semitic violence. So I, I think one really does lead to the next. I do. So this is why positive or potentially not derogatory comments or anything that can sound complimentary, ultimately, like they run Hollywood or they own half the real estate, is derogatory. Meaning, is it a derogatory state to begin with? And I'm only asking as the devil's advocate mm-hmm. yeah. because... No, no, it's a, it's a really good question. So first of all, I think those things should be discussed. There's a, a tradition within halakha, Jewish tradition, that we're not supposed to say even nice things about other people. Now, why is that? Because it could lead to Lashon Hara. Now, I don't know if anyone's trying to be nice to the Jews by saying they have so much money. They control Hollywood. They control the banks. Those are old anti-Semitic tropes actually offered up by the Nazis. They're, they're, they're too close to us. They're taking over. By the way, just the opposite of what Haman said in the Purim story. How did Haman convince Achashverosh to kill the Jews? He said there's this one nation, Mefuzar Umufarad ben Amin, they're scattered, and their laws are not our, like our laws, and they follow their own ways. And what he was arguing is that they're not loyal citizens. They're not involved. They're not integrated. The Nazis said just the opposite. We're too integrated. Their daughters are marrying our sons. Their sons are marrying our daughters. So this is why these reasons for anti-Semitism are just, in my opinion, excuses. Because every generation comes up with another reason to hate the Jew. Either we're too close to them or too far from them. But it's clearly an anti-Semitic thing. First of all, it's not true. There are tons of Jews in Hollywood. Does that mean we control Hollywood? There are tons of Jews with lots of money. Does that mean we control the banks? Is there really a group and a committee of Jews that sit there and figure out what the uh, interest rates should be or who should get the next Emmy Award, you know, in Hollywood. It's a fact that we have, we are disproportionately represented in most fields. And stereotypes are there because they represent truth. Sure. So I think it's okay to turn back and say, well, there is some truth to that. The truth is we've done really well and we should be proud of that. We don't have to wear it on our sleeve. But why should I be embarrassed that we're successful? Thank God we're successful. That's a good thing. God commanded Adam, the Kifshua, to, to conquer the world, to harness the force of nature, to make the world a better place. We make people laugh. We show, we, we're actors in movies. We're in Hollywood. We're making money. We're making the world happen. That's great. What's wrong with that? When it, become, it becomes anti-Semitic when you say we're controlling everything. We're holding on to all the money. We are preventing other people from getting into Hollywood. Okay, that's, that's the anti-Semitic part, but they're touching on certain truths. They are touching on certain truths. And I don't know why we can't acknowledge those truths and, and say, where, where does, where's the line? Where is the line from saying there's so many Jews in Hollywood to Jews control Hollywood? Because control is an anti-Semitic trope. Now, they might, a real anti-Semite who's just hating us because, like any form of bigotry, it's just an irrational hatred of the other. What they might be doing, what Kanye West might be doing is actually, you know, bringing up stuff that he knows everyone thinks is true. That's how you get credibility. And then once you get everybody, you know, nodding their heads, going, yeah, there are a lot of Jews in hell. Yeah, most of my Jewish friends have a lot of money. Then you can keep going with it. The question is, where do you keep going with it? You know what I would do? I would, I, would, I would give you an analogy. The same thing's happening from the left now. Anti-Semitism on the left. Tax Israel. It's okay to critique Israel. But to say that Israel's an apartheid state, that Israel's a Nazi Germany, that Israel is a colonizer, and is, it is systematically oppressing the Palestinians, that's very different than saying, I don't agree with the way Israel is handling the Palestinian-Israeli issue. So you could, we could talk about that, and we could say that you don't like Netanyahu, you like this guy's approach, you think the whole, you know, the Jews should get out of the West Bank because that's that. We can talk about that. That doesn't make you an anti-Semite. 
What makes you an anti-Semite is to label an entire country apartheid, Nazi Germany, because you disagree with some with, with, with how their, their treatment of the Palestinians. And I think what we need to do is drill down on the issues and, and, and acknowledge the fact that there's the first part of your statement might be true, but the second part of your statement is not true. And you're saying that to just make us look like we're controlling everything. Organized intention. There's somehow like a plan here to keep people it's down. A conspiracy. Is a conspiracy very good? Okay, so one of the most common questions I used to get as an Orthodox Jew who grew up in Moscow was, what was it like being Jewish there? Were you afraid for your life? What's anti-Semitism like there? My programmed response mm -hmm. became, it's not any different than anywhere else. And take New York City. You live on the Upper West Side, correct? Yes. What's anti-Semitism like there on a daily basis or weekly basis? What are the stories you're hearing? Let's just illustrate to some people who think, oh, yeah. New York, Jewtown, everybody there must be so safe. The Golden and Medina. The Golden Medina. I mean, I don't know what you experienced in Moscow. I know back from the 80s and 90s what was going on. I really don't know so much. I'm sure you could speak a lot more intelligently to that than I can. I grew up with, in Queens, and I was the subject of a couple of anti-Semitic attacks. I was mugged a few times and it wasn't about the money. It was about the kippah on my head. I was called dirty Jew and kike, I don't know, a lot of times. I grew up around the corner from an orphanage and across the street from a public high school. And even though that public high school has a decent number of Jews who go there, I got beaten up, attacked, and called names from, that, from, that, from kids that were in that school. So I had that. And then I moved to the city and nothing really happened for many, many years. And I think something changed in the last few years. I think that there's, it's the first time I ever spoke to my kids about wearing their kippot on the street in Manhattan. Um, I told them that if, I said, I was talking to them about maybe we'll wear baseball hats, I'm not sure. One of my sons looked at me and said, how could we do that? Are we, are we, are we not proud of being, I said, we are, but we're still fulfilling the commandment of keeping our heads covered and then my other kid said, you know, Daddy, if we were black, how would we, how would we hide that? And somehow that resonated with me. So my kid's are a little older now, so I said, fine. But if you walk around, you got to walk around with something. You got to get mace. You got to get brass knuckles. You got to hold an umbrella. I know that sounds ridiculous. But you, uh, I walked around for almost a year with my, my stand that I used to do my, my videos you know, the little circle ring thing. You know, something. I took the circle ring thing off and I carried it around because I just wanted something to use if I would be attacked because I was wearing a kippah or yarmulke or I was concerned because I went to a few rallies uh, to protest anti-Semitism in Midtown and they got out of hand. And I wanted to have something to protect a fellow Jew if I was on a subway, if I was on a bus and somebody was being picked on. And the people who usually get picked on I mean, my friend who's, who works at Westside Judaica, it's a beautiful Hasidic family on, on 88th and Broadway. He was standing outside of his shop, just taking a break. And some guy ran over, called him a dirty Jew and hit him in the face. This was a, probably about a year and a half ago. It was on the news. There was also an incident with a couple of kids who were chased for about two, three blocks and chased by other kids, by 14, 15 year olds holding something. They still don't know what it was. And the kids were really, they were really afraid. So is this happening all the time? No. <clears throat> but the NYPD reported last year that one third of all hate crimes in New York are now against Jews. One third. Wow. And last year, 2021, there was, I don't have the statistics yet for 2022, there were a little more than 300 hate crimes in New York City. And over a hundred of them were against Jewish people. So the big question here is, what do we do about this? Aren't we in the world of so much knowledge and we are in a first world country and we are post-Holocaust and everything is loud and clear and we're still struggling with this. What, what do we do yeah. about this? We have TikTok, we have... Yeah, and, and I like the way you phrased your question because I think that's precisely the first thing we need to do is to acknowledge the fact that even though we live in a first world country, 
We can go visit the camps and the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And we've had a lot of Holocaust education. We need to recognize that Afal Pekain, even so, there's always going to be anti-Semitism in the most enlightened, liberal Western culture in the world. And we can't fool ourselves into thinking that the more accepted we are in our society, and the more Jews become part and parcel and assimilate into our society, the more we're going to be loved. There will be more love of the Jew, and, but anti-Semitism will still be there. And we know this from history. Nobody was more integrated in a secular society than Jews in Germany. Jews in Germany held incredible positions of power and authority, affluence and prominence. They were leading scientists. They were members of government. They were lawyers, doctors, professors in the universities. Where did Rabbi Soloveitchik go in the 1930s to get his doctorate in philosophy? He went to the University of Berlin. Where was Albert Einstein living? Okay, so we have a very good example of a very technologically sophisticated, like the University of Berlin was like the Harvard of Europe. That's where the greatest scholars in the world came, the greatest technology and scientists. It wasn't just Einstein. He was... He had a lot of colleagues, many of whom were Jews. But now we have social media. We have cameras on every corner. And it doesn't matter. It does not so matter. It's not going to stop anti-Semitism. So that's a really good question. So I think the first thing that we have to do is, it's number one is education. We have to first and foremost know that there can be anti-Semitism, even though the Holocaust is, people are aware of it. It doesn't matter. It's an irrational bigotry that will reveal its ugly face, even in the face of great liberalism and progress. So that's number one. We have to tell that to people. And we have to let people know. And when there's an anti-Semitic incident, it needs to be powered up all over the place. More importantly than that, we have to protect ourselves. Okay, we have to enlist, of course, work with the mainstream authorities, with the NYPD, with the FBI, who want to put an end to this. They do. We then have to, I think, not rely on ourselves. We have to learn from Israel. And that is every synagogue and Jewish institution needs to be fortified. They cannot be soft targets. Uh, CSS, I don't know if you're familiar with CSS, which is a great volunteer organization that does, they're all over the country now. And I would say, I, know, I personally know a dozen shuls that have CSS volunteers in addition to a guard who's usually carrying a gun protecting synagogues, Jewish institutions, and the like. And plus, we're training I heard uh, young people. I think people should be learning Krav Maga. We should not be victims. That doesn't mean we should go on the prowl and look for people, God forbid, to beat up. We, but we need to defend ourselves. And then the third thing, as an outreach rabbi, I will tell you, is let's use this in a positive sense. Let's, the biggest revenge that we can have on Hitler, Yamach Shemo, is grandchildren, is Jewish babies. The biggest revenge we can have on anti-Semites today is that we do something positive with it. We not only call it out when we see it, we not only educate the public, and we not only defend ourselves against it, but we use it to build and strengthen our community from within. And here's how I think we can do that. When people feel threatened because of their identity, whether you're black, you're Asian, you're Hispanic, you're gay, you're Jewish, it doesn't matter. People tend to feel more strongly about who they are. And then a lot of our brothers and sisters will be asking that question. Once they're all exercised and upset that someone has called them a dirty name or someone is attacking their colleague at work, why am I Jewish? What am I standing up for exactly? What are the principles of Judaism that Jews feel so strongly about that they will fight back? Because if we don't really know why being Jewish is valuable, then why be the subject of anti-Semitism? I could very simply no longer affiliate with being Jewish. I can simply say I no longer identify as a Jew. Take the yarmulke, throw it off, get rid of it, and say, that's, that, that's an answer to, by the way, <laughs> some people said that that's an answer to anti-Semitism. Don't be Jewish anymore. They won't hate you. Is that supposed to be a serious response? <laughs> Like, does that, you know, uh, Hitler, theater. So Hitler didn't care of your philosophy. And that's true. Theodor Herzl 
was an avowed assimilationist before he began the Zionist campaign. He believed that the answer to anti-Semitism was assimilation. He said the only way for Jews no longer to be hated, he wrote about this, is to be completely assimilated into the culture. And he lived in Vienna in Austria, and he was an extraordinarily assimilated and acculturated Jew in Austria. You know what changed his mind? The Dreyfus Affair. He was covering the Dreyfus Affair for a French paper. And Dreyfus, of course, was from France. And he heard the throngs of the mobs. And it was a close trial. And it was a terribly anti-Semitic thing. There was no evidence against him that he was spying on Germany for the French, for the French or the vice versa, whatever. And he realized that no matter how assimilated, Dreyfus was incredibly assimilated. He was fighting for the French army, and they still accused and convicted him of spying on Germany because he was a Jew. That convinced Herzl that he that that assimilating is not going to be a solution. He said, "We need our own country." Well, you brought in assimilation here. I'm wondering if you have some numbers because we do have a lot more assimilation since the Holocaust yeah. than people who were killed in the Holocaust or died because of it. Yes. What yes, What do. are some of the numbers of assimilation and <sighs> newcomers or new Jews, new observant Jews who are creating mm-hmm. more halachic Jews? So both of those things are both true, <laughs> meaning assimilation has picked up significantly. Just to give you a little sense, we'll talk about intermarriage. Intermarriage rates before the Second World War in America, take a guess negligible, 3%. It was almost unheard of, 3%. Intermarriage rates today in America are 58%. And just understand this, when I say 58%, that includes all of Orthodox Jews living in Teaneck, in the five towns, all the Hasidim in Borough Park, in Williamsburg, and in Muncie. If you pull the Orthodox community out of that number, it goes from 58% to 71%. So the rates of, of, of intermarriage, which is the primary cause for assimilation, have skyrocketed. They've literally gone from 3% to 71%, which is why our population, Jewish population in the United States before the Second World War was the same as it is today. It's 5 million. We still have 5 million Jews in America. By, by the most liberal estimations, okay, even if you're not considering, you're counting, let's say, non-halakhic Jews, but let's say even people whose fathers were Jewish and mothers were not, because that's how all these studies are done, the Pew study and all that. And think about that for a minute. Five million then, five million now. You know how many we should be? By the, by the most conservative, minimalist, ethnic growth numbers, we should be minimally at 15 million in America, and we're at five. So you're correct when you say that we've lost more Jews in America to assimilation than than we did in the Holocaust in Europe. People get very put off by that statement because, but I'm just talking in terms of statistics. The unfortunately net effect of an intermarriage slash assimilation is the same as a Jew, God forbid, being killed. Obviously, they're very, very different things, and I don't mean to completely conflate them, but the net effect is, is ultimately the same, which is that, you know, the next generation is is done with in terms of Jews. So, you know, and think about this for a minute. The fact that there's been so much assimilation, so much acculturation, so much, so many Jews in Hollywood and in finance and every Nobel Peace Prize, another Jew, and we are so loved and adored by our, our non-Jewish brothers and cousins and brothers and sisters. And it doesn't put an end to, to, to anti-Semitism. It doesn't change anti-Semitism, just like Theodor Herzl realized with the Dreyfus Affair, that you could have a Jew, I have to tell you a story here, a Jew who fights for the French army, a decorated Jew for the French army, and they send them away, they hang him, they execute him for no other reason than he was a Jew. My, I have a strange middle name. My English middle name is Nelson. Okay. So I'm named for my dad's uh, roommate of blessed memory. He was a bachelor his whole life. His name was Norbert. 
Norbert always told my father, he was a German Jew, that they, my dad and him were roommates when my father was single, like in the 1950s, a long time ago. He said when the Nazi brown shirts came for my father, my dad was sitting there, he put on his World War I, he put on his German uniform, he fought for the, for the Germans in World War I, he put on all of the decorations for all the medals and awards that he achieved. And these Nazi brown shirts, these kids, they were in their 20s. They looked at him and they were embarrassed because he was a decorated soldier for the German army. But guess what? They took him. Doesn't matter. You could become the greatest German in the world. You could become the greatest American in the world. You could become the greatest anything in the world. It's not going to end anti-Semitism. It's an irrational hatred that will always exist. The only thing we can do is call it out, fight against it, and acknowledge the fact that it is unfortunately part of existence. Now, I think we can train people, and, you know, and hatred is learned, and hatred can be unlearned. We haven't touched upon this yet, but I wanted to bring in the black Jews. Where's the representation of non-light-skinned Jews in response to Jew hatred, especially in response to Jew hatred coming from non-white non-Jews? So you're asking about darker Jewish people being more responsive to anti-Semitic statements coming from the black community? I just want to get your question correct. What's their opportunity here or... Can we take advantage of having black Jews? There, there's an opportunity here. That's how I'm looking at it. How can we? Yeah. Use it? So, Francisca, I, I, that's a great idea. By the way, I didn't even think of that. I do think there's an opportunity for black Jews to speak out against anti-Semitism that, unfortunately, is developing in the black community. So, I want to distinguish between two types of anti-Semitism developing, I think, in the black community. The first is the black Israelites that we spoke about a little before. They're a radical fringe group that are dangerous. I don't think there's much dialogue we can do with them. I think they're a bunch of, excuse me, Meshuganos and crazies. I just interviewed Dumasani Washington, who's a great black leader. He's a preacher from North Carolina. He wrote a book on Zionism and the black church. And he was ex trying to explain to me their ideology, why they think they're the real Jews, and all of us masquerading as Jews are just fakers. I don't even understand anything. He doesn't get it either. It makes no sense. They're just like, I don't know if they're all brainwashed, they're a little crazy. They just had a group meeting in front of Barclays. I just think we have to make sure that we are protected against them and we call out any of their anti Semitic statements, which unfortunately, are all the time. But I separate that from the mainstream African-American community, who I view as our brothers and sisters. I do because Jews have been involved for decades in the, uh, uh, the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement, which was framed by Dr. King, uh, Martin Luther King, using verses from the Torah about the enslaved Jewish people eventually making it to the promised land. And and, and, and we all have good black friends and alliances. They need to get stronger and we need to build upon them and get some more understanding and cooperation between our two communities. Because I am nervous, and I'm not talking about the black, black Israelites anymore. I am nervous about what could happen again, like in Crown Heights, like it happened with the Crown Heights riots. I think those were in the 90s. Because there's definitely a sense amongst some African-Americans that Jews are unfairly successful and using too much of the pie, you know, cutting up too much of the pie and it's somehow affecting them. And I, and it's, it's not a true thing. It's not like, cause we're here, they're over here and we need to have conversations with smart black people who can understand this and we can have a little more education and, and, and mutual respect vis-a-vis -vis our, 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 our two communities. And I don't think there's enough. We don't have enough. And I think it comes out because we don't have enough interactions. We don't. We don't have enough. I think, and, and I'm partially guilty of this, 
I have some friends and colleagues in, in, in the black community. I, I do. I don't have enough. I should have more. And I think if I had more, and I think if they had more close interactions with Jewish people, because unfortunately, some of their interactions is sort of a class thing. A lot of buildings are owned by Jews, landlords, and some of the tenants are blacks, don't like the way the, the building is being managed. They don't know any other Jewish people. So they assume that the way they're being dealt with or the way they perceive they're being treated by their Jewish landlord must be the way all of these Jews operate. They've got all the money, the control, and all those tropes that we talked about before get kind of, you know, filled in. So, I, and, and I think there's a lot we can do there, though. So I'm much more optimistic about that group than I am about the black Israelites. So you're giving an open invitation here for any mm -hmm. black Americans who want to have yeah. conversations and continue unlearning Jew hatred. Yeah, that can be 100% unlearned. And, uh, you know, my brother is a mayor in Englewood, New Jersey. Now, most Jews know Englewood, New Jersey is a very affluent Jewish community thriving modern orthodox community conservative reform is there but there are more black people actually who live in englewood than there are jews okay and there isn't a lot of interaction i'm very proud of my brother that he's done he speaks often in black churches and he's done a lot to bring the two communities together that needs to happen on the grassroots level it doesn't need to only happen like on podcasts or public forums People need to, the, the problem is that's where ignorance leads to bigotry and anti-Semitism is when we just don't know each other. So then the one or two people we do know that we don't have a good interaction with, they become the gauge. They become like, that's the Jew, that's the black, right? If you have, if, if, I, if I have no black friends and I get into a fight with a black person, now I shouldn't do this, but I might be led to think that that's what, other black people are thinking and you know now i know that's not true and that's and, and that's racist to to extrapolate but that's what's happening and i think unfortunately that's happened in the black community i think it's simmering beneath the surface and i think like you were pointing out francisca how these statements what kind of impact are the these statements are thrown out there by influential people like dave Chappelle, who i'm a big fan of not so happy about his last you know thing on S on snl I posted about that. I felt like he was way too casual about making these jokes. And I think he needs to be much more responsible, okay, because he's a very important influence on black America. And he's a really smart and funny guy. But, but you, you know, if you make light of these things enough times, and it, it kind of gives credence to, unfortunately, what some people on the ground already think about Jews. Right, it's reinforcing beliefs. Yeah. What about the biggest form of anti-Semitism, which is Jews who are hating on Jews or Jews who make bad comments yeah. or are <laughs> self-hating? <laughs> By self, I mean others. I was so hoping. <laughs> but who are also Jews. Yeah, I was so hoping you wouldn't, you wouldn't ask me about that because it's, you know, it's appropriate because it's Hanukkah. And one of the reasons why, you know, I just gave a class what you didn't learn about Hanukkah in Hebrew school. Because the Hanukkah story, you know, it wasn't like the Jewish community was living exactly like they were supposed to do following their Torah and mitzvot. And the big bad Greek Hellenists came along and said, stop being Jewish, be Hellenist. And we fought against them. And, you know, we survived. Let's eat. You know, what actually happened was that there were a lot of Jews trying to be more Greek than Jewish who were very attracted to this new ideology sweeping the ancient Near East, Hellenism. And they started trying to suck Jews out of the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, building these gymnasiums, promising big amounts of money to Antiochus, you know, to, in, in, in return to consider Jews living under Greek rule as honorary Greek citizens. That's what brought on the Hanukkah story. Jewish Hellenists. So I think we need to recognize that this is a problem and that there are always going to be Jewish people that really have it in for their own people and their own faith. I think we need to separate between that and people who legitimately 
intellectually, philosophically, just don't believe in Judaism and get sucked into other isms. And it's unfortunate, and I fight against that. But that's, I don't consider that person an anti-Semite, and I don't consider that person a self-hating Jew. I consider that person a little lost. You know, okay, maybe that's a little not so nice to call them lost. Maybe they think they found the light, and Judaism is primitive and old. But, you know, I very much believe in what's called Torah Umada. I drank the Kool-Aid when I went to YU, Torah and science, that we don't have to have a Torah-only approach and that we can combine and synthesize Torah with the best of Western culture. So I don't believe in just studying Torah. I study lots of English and secular literature and philosophy. But if somebody chooses to no longer, you know, believe in Torah, you know, I'm disappointed, it's upsetting, but I would never consider such a Jew a self-hating Jew or an anti-Semite. I think you get into that when that Jew starts actively trying to bring others out, starts speaking in general terms against Torah, against Jews, against Israel. It's fine if you're on the left to protest, you know, let's say if there's a, the Israeli government decides to destroy a Palestinian home because the family was involved in terrorism, or there was a Supreme Court case and the Supreme Court decided that, that uh, a certain Arab family shouldn't be living in a certain area. Go protest. Go say why you disagree. But to start ca calling the government apartheid and Nazi and, 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 and say that Israel has no legitimacy anymore and we should boycott her, that's the line. That, to me, becomes a self-hating Jew. That becomes an anti-Semite, even though they're Jewish themselves. So I, I think it's all where the line is. And I don't think we can throw out the baby with the bathwater and say that anyone who disagrees with me must be a self-hating Jew. Anyone who disagrees who's not Orthodox or against Orthodoxy must be an anti-Semite. You know, I, I, I don't agree with that. And I think, I think we need to know how to tell the difference. I would like to wrap up this interview by asking you, for a fun fact, I know your father worked mm -hmm. on the John Lennon with John Lennon. <laughs> Anything you can yeah, share with us? Yeah. Oh my God. I love talking about that. By the way, I so appreciate it because my wife doesn't let me talk about it anymore because it's at nauseum in my family. So my dad was John Lennon's lawyer for many years. Specifically, I don't know if you know the case. My dad's an immigration lawyer. My brother took over the firm. I was working there and the Nixon administration, basically after the Beatles broke up, tried to deport John Lennon. They said the reason was is because he had a marijuana conviction in England, which he did, but nobody really gets deported because they smoked a little weed in some other country. Nixon was trying to get him out because John had started a dump Nixon campaign right after the Beatles broke up and, and, the, and the voting age has just changed. A lot of young people, the voting age was just moved to 18. That was, that was like the age of people following the Beatles, John Lennon, George Harrison, you know, Paul McCartney. And Nixon thought that Lennon was going to cost him the election. I mean, that's how popular the Beatles were. And John was trying to, John was trying to cost them the election. <laughs> he was trying to use his influence because he was very anti-Vietnam. And Nixon kept sending Americans to Vietnam and the Beatles and all the rock and roll hippie groups were against that. So my dad was his lawyer and he defeated the U.S. government's attempts to deport John. The case lasted almost five years. I was a little boy at the time. I got to meet him on my ninth birthday. My dad brought me to court. My brother and I to court to meet John and Yoko. Uh, she gave me a big kiss, which I, I was a little grossed out by. And he wished me a happy birthday and said, you can have your daddy back now. And I remember him saying that because my father was really busy for those last few years. And uh, I'm the craziest Beatle fan in my family. Right now I'm into George Harrison big time. But my dad very much loved John. They had like a real relationship. They spoke all the time. My dad was, he should live and be well. My dad is your classic Jewish lawyer. He's not like a rock and roller. He's like a very kind of square in the box. You know, he's amazing. My dad's my greatest mentor and role model. But uh, uh, this is actually a true story. On the way to my dad being interviewed by the Lenins to see if they would choose him as their lawyer, because they had the you know pick of the litter, he had to ask the cab driver who John Lennon was. He had no idea. 
because my dad listened to classical music. He was like, he never, he thought rock and roll was like noise, you know. He was too from. Older generation. <laughs> he was different. No, he actually wasn't, but he liked classical music. So John Lennon was like a huge part of my childhood. And by the way, that case was a precedent setting case uh, that a lot of other people were able to come into this country and get a green card. Uh, my dad got John his green card. And my brother's still in touch with Yoko, actually. So that's a little fun fact. And I play the drums, and most of the stuff I played was Beatles. I'm at, we actually have a little band at MGE, a couple of my students and I. Nice. Yeah, thank you so much, Rabbi Mark, for coming on. <laughs> it is it's really my pleasure, and it's so nice to meet you. And uh, you should be matzleich with all Amin, your work. Thank you. To you as well. Thank you for sticking around until the end. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you follow this show on your favorite podcasting app. Also, feel free to join the WhatsApp group to participate in the ongoing conversations about taboo subjects in our communities. If you are thinking about that podcast and starting your own, check out the links in my show notes to get more information about the DIY course. Next week, we have the new music video and the non-anonymous addiction episode. I hope you are getting ready for Hanukkah and all the light that it will shine and spread into our winter and our lives. Get what, friends, dance. I am opening up spots on my podcast to help bring awareness to your brands and your organizations. And I have slots available for as low as $15 a month. So if you'd like to be a sponsor of The Francisca Show and you would like to spread the word about your brand and organization to all the incredible and diverse listeners of this show, please do reach out. My email is in the show notes and have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to The Francisca Show. Mm-hmm.